witnessing a front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. Hello and welcome to Front Three Quarter View, my Twin Peaks podcast where I discuss anything and everything um, related to the Twin Peaks universe. Now, if you listened to my last podcast, um, which I defended season two in, or the end of season two, um, then I said at the end that I would be talking about The Secret History next. That podcast is recorded, um, it just needs to be edited, and then it will be out, and it's basically just 20-30 minutes of me saying how brilliant the book is, um, and talking about some of the different aspects within it. But this podcast interested me a lot more, um, and I really wanted to put this out first and record it uh, a lot sooner because I've just finished watching The Return, and I sped through it at the end, um, and I finished it earlier this week, and I, I, I just have a lot to say about it. Well, particularly, I have a lot to say about part 17 and 18, and that's what I'll be discussing this morning, um, which I suppose is an odd thing to say because you might not be listening to it in the morning, but it's the morning for me. Um, so this podcast um, might be a little bit rambling. Um, I've written a load of notes. I'm just going to go through them in the order that I've written them. But hopefully, like the experience of watching The Return itself, that things may seem separate and random to begin with, but by the end, hopefully it will all come together beautifully. Um, but still leave you with some open questions. That's probably what the experience of this podcast will be like. Um, so if there is anything that I raise um, about part 17 or 18 that you find interesting or kind of would think would would be interesting to discuss more, um, then let me know by all means. And if you're listening to the podcast, then tell me what you think. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. So, um, some of these thoughts about part 17 and 18 are thoughts I had while watching them. Um, during part 18, I was just constantly typing things that I thought about the show and ideas that I'd had. And it had been really interesting actually watching it over quite a condensed period of time because a lot of stuff kind of connected for me that hadn't connected before and some stuff seemed more relevant and other bits less. And... It was really interesting kind of doing that. So when I was watching them, I had a lot of thoughts. And after I'd finished part 18, I basically spent 20 minutes, half an hour just writing stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of basing it off of basing this podcast off of those initial thoughts that I had. But also um, those initial thoughts brought me to mind of an article I read ages ago um, on the 25 Years Later site. Um, and the article was by John Bernardy, um, whose surname I've possibly just mispronounced, in which case I apologise for that. Um, but the article by John Bernardy said that the that Laura was in a White Lodge witness protection programme, and that's what Carrie Page's existence was. 
And that article has actually been so, so useful in forming my own theories. So I'll be talking about that a little bit. And also I've been watching the Take the Ring videos on YouTube, which are exceptionally well put together. Um, but there are some really interesting thoughts in those as well, so I'll be bringing them in too. My first thought about part 17 was, when does Judy take over Sarah Palmer? And how will Laura being back home stop that? And how comes Judy still wins? So there I'm referencing the bit where she's smashing the pitcher with the bottle. Um, that's for a long time. And when I watched part 17 this time as well, actually, um, possibly, in fact, even until I listened to some of the theories that were out there, I assumed that Cooper lost when Laura disappears in the, the woods. So she she runs off um, from James. She goes into the woods. There's that remarkably filmed scene with Cheryl Lee looking like Laura Palmer did and acting like she did, you know, 25 years ago. Not People don't talk about how good that scene is enough. That's incredibly skillful on, like, the part of the makeup. And, I mean, Cheryl Lee is just incredible and these two parts really showcase this um and i'm basically just hoping there's a season four purely so we can see a little bit more of cheryl lee and carrie page um but that's such a good scene but i'd always assumed when she disappears from cooper and you hear the scratching noise that the fireman plays him at the beginning of the series he loses and Judy's one if Judy's in Sarah because she is angry and she's smashing the picture and I always assumed she'd kind of had something to do with Laura disappearing. That will change because when I watch part 18 and I watch some of the theories my thinking on that has changed so that's a question I had at the end of part 17 about it. Um, I was also wondering in relation to part 17 why Cooper's face was superimposed over some bits of the scene in the sheriff's station and not others. Um, he disappears when um, Laura Dern comes back, Diane, that's the one. When Diane comes back, he, his face disappears. And there are a couple of other moments where it fades out as well that I'd not noticed before. So it would be really interesting to go through that again. And just notice which bits his face is over and which bits it's not. Because um, I suppose the implication is that has a kind of relationship to this um, dream theory. Where, you know, as Monica Bellucci says, another fantastic scene in The Return. Um, you know, we are like the dreamer. Um, but who is the dreamer? And we live, you know, we live inside a dream. So naturally a lot of people have kind of taken that and run with it because it seems, especially towards the end of the return, that this idea of dreaming and who's the dreamer and which bits are a dream and which bits are reality, it seems like that is really quite important to understanding the return. Um, but again, I also have some thoughts about that. So when I get to part 18, I'll return to that too. Another thing I thought about part 17 was, is it a shame that the ending is so FBI driven? Um, are Cooper and Diane the right ones to have at the end? I suppose what I mean by that is it's almost a shame that he Cooper goes back to Twin Peaks and then he goes to the room in the Great Northern basement, cellar, maintenance room, whatever it was, boiler room, 
Um, and he goes there with Gordon and Diane. And I guess I just kind of felt, as uh, you know, having watched through seasons one and two beforehand, I think it's actually a shame that Harry wasn't around to, you know, to, to be there and to go with him. It feels like it should be Cooper and Harry, actually, I think. But it makes sense that it's Cooper and Diane because this story is very much about them. Um, the thing that, that does make me slightly sad when I watch part 17 is um, there's this kind of joyous moment of reunion between Diane and Cooper. There's also a theory that um, Diane, when she appears there, is actually her coming back from the the kind of the world that they cross to, the lodge world or the trap world or the real world, depending on your theory, um, the world where Carrie pages. When Diane disappears, there's a theory that she then comes back to meet Cooper in that moment um, in the sheriff's station. And that's a lovely, sweet moment. But I almost feel like... It's very odd Cooper doesn't mention Annie ever. And... You know, I think Mark Frost has said that she didn't really come up in their conversations, which is fair enough. And he addresses her. Um, it's a, an absolutely tragic story in the final dossier. I've just started listening to that again. And Frost addresses Annie's story then. And it has this kind of poignant um, ending, which I think is very well done. But um, oh, it's it's just a bit of a shame that Annie isn't mentioned. And... I do find it odd that not in a lodge scene, like a, a red room scene, or in kind of the real world, Cooper ever mentions her. He just gets with Diane straight away. And I can't quite place whether he spent... He can't have spent the last 25 years with Diane in the lodge, knowing she was there. Can he? Like, that's... that's that 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 didn't happen, did it? Like, the first time he sees her is when she... You know, when it's revealed that Naido is her. Um, so, yeah, I don't... For me, that doesn't add up, that moment of Cooper and Diane reunioning. Um, although it's a beautiful moment, and obviously very important for, for long-term fans, I find it odd that Annie isn't mentioned at all, and a little bit un-Cooper-like. Um, I know it's been 25 years, but, like... I'm guessing not a lot's happened in that 25 years in the Red Room, has it really? He's just been sitting, drinking coffee that might be oil. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, there's a whole range of questions about that time Cooper spent in the Red Room, actually. And I just can't quite get my head around that a lot of the time. 25 years is such a long time to spend there. I'm like, what did he do? <laughs> Very odd. Um, so... Um, Another thought I had about part 17 is it can feel like a long series um, at times, but from part 15 onwards, you kind of get this sense that we're heading towards an ending. And then when you hit part 17, that's really the resolution, isn't it? Part 17 is really the finale. And up to the end of part 17, I was kind of understanding everything. Um, part 18 just blows all of that out the water. It feels like its own thing. It's quite separate in some ways, but... I think what the series does, although it feels like a very long series, what I think what it does is it prepares you for the finale. It gives you all the information you need. And 
Um, it's a lot more connected and cohesive than I've ever realised before. So many of the plot lines, which feel like they're not really going anywhere early on, so many of them are resolved and they have a payoff. And that's not something I'd really been entirely aware of, but it's incredibly important that it happens. And I was really pleased to see that. Um, so I think The Return is definitely benefited from watching in a condensed period of time. Um, I think watching it over, you know, 15, 16 weeks um, is a hard way of watching it the first time you see it. But equally, I do think you probably need a week to then digest. So I think the way they showed it originally was probably the right move. Um, my last thought, um, Julie Cruz in part 17, beautiful performance at the end. She's credited as herself. None of the other artists are credited as themselves. They're either... Oh, maybe Rebecca Del Rio is. I'm not sure, actually. Because when they're playing with a band, generally, the band and the musician are all credited under the musician's name. When Lissy plays, for example, Wild West, great song, um, she's credited with her, her name, Lissy, and... Her band is also credited under that name. But it's like it's like she is playing a character version of that of her of herself. So it's really weird then that Julie Cruz is credited as herself, like the word herself. Cause that's the first kind of like um real world connection that those scenes have been given in the credits. And the credits were always quite important on the first watch because the credits would tell you who characters were. Um, so, like, I think they revealed that Richard was a horn, for example. So, the credits are important, and, yeah, I just wonder whether that's telling us something about those roadhouse scenes, or that roadhouse scene. And that's, you know, that's important when Eddie Vedder performs, but he is introduced and credited as his real name, or he's playing, you know, this version of himself with the real name. Um, so there's definitely something there, I think, to help decode the roadhouse scenes. And you could do a whole podcast, and actually I might at some point, on Audrey. And I've got a lot of thoughts about Audrey's season three plotline. And also actually her appearance in the final dossier, um, which I listened to last night. I listened to Audrey's chapter. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot you can say about Audrey. And... That actually brings me very nicely onto part 18. For a long time, I have been of the opinion that the coolest theory, or at least the one I thought had most relevance or wanted to believe the most, maybe, I thought the coolest theory was that when Cooper crosses into Carrie Page world, Cooper is crossing into our world. That's the real world. That doesn't quite tally all the way, but no Twin Peaks theories really do. I've always kind of been of that opinion. And then you get Mary Reber, sorry if I've again pronounced that surname wrong, um, who owns the house that Sarah Palmer owns in the show. She turns up, she's Alice Tremond, she's a real person who really owns that house. That, to me, was like, well, this is the real world then. And that's, that's a really cool little, like, touch that Lynch introduced. 
And it helped me to think that Cooper and, you know, uh, Carrie were in the real world, and that that's where Audrey had woken up into as well. Having watched part 18 again, I now don't think that's right. And I think, and in fact, I can remember the moment I was like, mm, this theory doesn't work anymore. When they pull up outside Sarah's house and they get out of the car and they walk towards it, I remember looking at that and thinking, there's been too much stuff here that contradicts that theory and that makes me not believe it anymore. And I, I don't think they're crossing into the real world. So for me, that was quite a big thing because that's a theory I'd always kind of enjoyed and, and associated with the ending of the show. But on this rewatch, a lot of other things about part 18 had kind of started to build up for me. And I'd started to think a bit more about other explanations. Thought number one, Laura is no longer in the Black Lodge when Cooper replays slash relives slash lives for the first time the is it future, is it past scene with the one-armed man. Um, so the time he sees Laura whispering into his ear is a flashback, I presume. She's not in the Red Lodge. The Red Lodge? She's not in the Red Room slash Black Lodge um, by that time because... Either she was taken away from it in the opening when she gets kind of wafted up into the curtains. And I think we see that again in part 18. Um, or because Cooper has removed her from ever needing to be in the Red Room. So so she's not in those scenes anymore. There is they, they make the point of, you know, the camera shows the chair where Laura should be. It's absent. She's absent. Um... So that was a sign to me that she'd been removed and that these is it future, is it past scenes were subtly different from the ones that we'd seen in episode, is it part two or part three? Um, kind of earlier on in the series. And also I, th I think this is the case, that the scene where Cooper walks up and sees Leland in the chair and he says, find Laura, I think that's flipped. I think he walks in the other curtain, like from the other side. That might be wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure he comes in from the other end, implying that kind of things are, this is a different playing out of the scene um, to how it was when we first saw it, either because it's the same scene that's now been altered or because it's happening again, or there's there's thousands of theories on that, on that and I know that um, on the internet, so these are just kind of my thoughts and I'd highly recommend that you go and check some of those out. So the thing that really puzzled me with part 18, and I mean really confused me and took up the majority of my thinking, was the backup plan where Cooper and Diane cross to another world always intended? That's the question I wrote myself when I was watching part 18. And then I had to try and work out whether Cooper and Diane crossing to another world was a backup plan. Because actually, he tells Diane to meet him at the curtain call. At the very beginning, the fireman has told him to go 430 miles, two birds with one stone. This, this is part of the plan, this is not a backup plan. And on that realisation, I was confused, because I was like, well, 
he's failed to save Laura. So it makes sense to read it as a backup because he fails to save Laura, so he just moves on to the next stage of his plan, maybe. Or he, you know, he tries something else, another way of defeating Judy. And by doing that, he goes, he crosses to this world. And then I had the realisation that he was always meant to cross to this world, and so I was like, well, maybe maybe the fireman always knew that Cooper was going to fail. Maybe, you know, Cooper failing was part of the plan, so that's why Cooper doesn't actually look that disturbed when Laura disappears in the woods. And actually, Cooper then goes to meet Diane, or comes out the Black Lodge again, and he goes... He goes and they follow kind of the intended backup plan almost. So this was always going to happen. Um, it's, it's another way of defeating Judy. The thing that kind of reinforced that for me, um, and this is the note that I've written to myself when I was watching it. So what if the plan of saving Laura and using her to defeat Judy, two birds, one stone. What if that fails? So he just moves on to trying to find Judy, as the fireman intended. They go 430 miles, and he goes to look for her. Cooper looks surprised when Carrie Page answers the door. He looks surprised to see Laura Palmer. So when he goes to Judy's, the cafe, or the diner, he thinks the other waitress will be Sarah. That's who he's looking for. Because he knows that Sarah is Judy. We can kind of infer that from other bits. So he thinks the waitress will be Sarah. He goes to the house expecting to find Sarah. But actually, he finds Laura. He looks surprised and then discovers Laura thinks she's someone else. That theory plays out. That works. He He's visibly surprised when he sees Carrie. And... So that, I was kind of happy with that theory that, you know, it wasn't, maybe he he failed to save Laura, and so when he sees her again in kind of this, this real world, this other world where she's Carrie, he thinks, great, I've got another chance to kill two birds with one stone. I can use Laura to help defeat Judy again. Because presumably I was thinking that whatever he was doing you know, he was going to do something else because the Laura aspect of the plan had failed. He'd moved on to the next one. That was kind of my working hypothesis, if you like. Um, but then I watched the Take the Ring video. Um, it's a series of theory videos on YouTube. I'd highly recommend. I'd highly recommend checking them out. Take the Ring implies that Laura doesn't disappear and Cooper doesn't fail so Cooper although it looks like he's trying to take her to the entrance to the White Lodge um, where the fireman is what if actually he takes her close enough and then you hear the scratching noise which was played in the White Lodge to begin with which I always thought was like you know, beware of this noise, try and avoid it. This is what the bad guys will do to try and take her. That's why I thought Sarah and Judy won, um, you know, when they're smashing her picture. But now it's like 
Well, if the White Lodge is playing that sound, maybe that's part of the White Lodge's plan. When you hear this sound, you know you kind of can move on to the next bit. So the White Lodge actually kind of play the scratchy sound when Laura is taken out of existence. She's taken by the White Lodge. The video then theorises she's placed in a trap world where she lives as Carrie. And then she can use her, quote, concentrated orb energy to destroy Judy, implying that actually none of this is a backup plan or Cooper hasn't moved on to the next bit and just got lucky when finding Carrie. This is literally always the way it's been intended to happen. Um, which would make sense with the fireman saying two birds with one stone. The fireman giving him the directions for 130 miles. That makes perfect sense um, as a theory. And I'd been really confused by what the Laura Orb actually did and what the point of it actually was. I feel like although part eight is amazing, for me it now actually raises more questions. I thought it explained everything, but I think weirdly now it kind of complicates everything for me. Um, it kind of adds an extra dimension onto the story. But more on that in a bit. Um, so yeah, there, there seems to be a kind of assumption now in a few of the other articles and videos that I kind of went through um, after watching the episodes. The implication seems to be now that Cooper succeeded in saving Laura and that placing her in this other world was part of the fireman's plan. And I'd always assumed he'd failed. And I think he does fail, but at the end of part 18, not 17. I think there's a failure in kind of later on than I'd thought. Um, and there seems to be a consensus that in 17 and into 18, things are actually going according to plan. So this brings me on to um, the John Bernardy article, um, which was one of the first real bits of exposure I kind of had to a Twin Peaks theory that seemed to really explain the crazy, crazy thing I just watched back in 2017. And um, it's it's a fascinating article and it talks about so many different things um, and kind of hints at lots of other theories as well um, and kind of thought processes, which is really interesting. But the core of the article... Um, is that Laura has been placed into a witness protection program organised by the White Lodge. So Diane and Cooper step into a lodge-created reality. The article also goes on to say that there is a system of surveillance um, that's used by both lodges, and that is that the horse is the white of the eye. In Carrie's house... There is a, a blue circle, a plate, and there is a horse in front of it, a white horse. The horse is the white of the eye. And so if this is a protection program by the White Lodge and we see a white horse in Sarah's home in season two and we see it in the Black Lodge in season three, then it makes sense that this is some kind of surveillance system used by both lodges. And, you know, that is possibly why the horse appears to Sarah in season two, but it's also why we see the plate and the little model of the horse 
in Carrie's house because they're keeping an eye on her. The article also says that um, Carrie is kind of... Um, there's, there, I think she's looped round and she's kind of living the same existence um, and that she, she breaks out of that because she's Laura Palmer and that's what Laura Palmer does. Um, and it's it's a real fascinating read and I highly recommend it. But there is a kind of crucial idea to it that, you know, that, that for me, literally, I feel really explains what's going on. I think whether she's been moved into a trap world or a witness protection program, the White Lodge have placed Laura safe as Carrie Page. She doesn't know her name, but she kind of recognises her parents' names. There are moments that kind of trigger her. She's kind of trance-like. There's that moment where she's in the car and she goes, in those days I was too young to know any better. Was she dreaming of being Laura? Who knows? Um, the article actually speculates that her life has been based on Shelley. Um, in, there's various similarities, but the house is unfinished both Shelley and Carrie's houses. Um, and that's a really interesting side of the theory that um, I'd recommend going to have a look at. But for me, the crucial idea is that the Lodge are protecting her here, but she breaks out of that protection because that's what Laura Palmer does. Um, she is driven and she knows herself even when she is someone else. And she is capable of going with this FBI man and not following the kind of the pattern of how things are meant to be. I don't really know where Alice Treeman being played by the woman who owns the house, the real house in the real world ties into that. But Alice Tremond as a name is just really important. Like that's incredibly significant. Um, because for me, when I watch that, and it's like, oh, you know, we're, we're, I'm Alice Treeman, the people who owned this house before us, they were the Chalfonts. That's like, well, I know exactly what's going on. And I might not, I might well be wrong. Um, but it feels like there's this kind of common sense element to it, or I found that when I was watching it, where I was kind of like, this is definitely the Black Lodge, like, in this house. They're definitely playing some kind of trick on Cooper. Cooper might not recognise it, but we've all seen it before. This is what the Black Lodge do. This is their kind of MO. You know, they're, they're playing the old Chalfont Tremont trick. They've done that, like, at least two, three times before. So it's just happening again. It's almost like... I almost felt like they were kind of mocking Cooper by playing the same trick. You know, oh, we're the Tremonts, the Chalfonts owned us beforehand. Um, and, you know, you just... And the fact that, obviously, Alice Tremont keeps looking behind the door to talk to an off-screen figure helps the theory that there's something shady going on. But also, you know, the other person sitting behind the door could just be laughing and just being like, how does he not realise this is a trick? Like, it to me, it really feels like... Um, it's a White Lodge protection scheme, or it's a trap world, but the Black Lodge win at the end and Cooper fails. Because they're playing the same trick we've seen lots of times before. That's what those names are telling us, I think. Um, at least in, in, my, in my version of events. Um, but then I, I, I've, I've also written the note, we know Judy won in the house at the end of part 17, it could be winning again. 
Because the thing I suppose I've always overlooked is that when Judy slash Sarah is smashing the pitcher with her bottle, the pitcher isn't damaged by the bottle at all. So that does that mean she's safe? Laura's safe? Because I always interpreted it as, oh look, Judy's winning. But I think actually maybe the pitcher is unharmed. That means Laura is being protected now. Maybe that's what it is. Um, and and yes, there's still Black Lodge forces within that house and they still trick Cooper at the end. But I, I do think that actually part 17 is a success, whereas before I thought it was a failure. And that's been a fascinating kind of process of realisation to come to through watching the finale and then through reading up about it and kind of thinking about what works. Um, and it's been an absolute joy to watch part 18 again. I... I don't think I've had a viewing experience kind of that recently that was like that, where I was just thinking and under trying to understand it and coming up with all these ideas all the time. And part 18 was just perfect for that. I mean, it was a fascinating thing to watch, you know, especially now I'm a few watches in of the return. Um... And especially now I can kind of pick up on some of the, the individual strands and start piecing them together a bit more. So I've got a couple of loose thoughts, um, kind of building on some of that, stepping away from some of that. Um, but I think my kind of, my main understanding, my main takeaway from watching the finale again and reading up about it is definitely that... Um, it's a kind of White Lodge protection world and that, or trap world, whatever you want to call it, um, and that the Black Lodge kind of get the upper hand again at the end. Um, one of my kind of thoughts was, how relevant is Cooper's question of what year is this? Because I'm not really sure that... Well, I mean, I suppose my logic for that is... How's Annie is never answered in the TV show, which is fair enough, because there's over 25 years between when the two of them are aired. Um, and it never really came up in conversation between Frost and Lynch, which is fair enough. Um, you know, that kind of makes me think, well, you know, is what year is this actually key in helping us understand season four and what happened next and what's happening now? Because I can't really tie it in that much to kind of the thinking that I have personally about the finale and what happens. I'm not sure it helps that much in understanding it. And I am i don't know how relevant or important that question is. I don't know whether it is the key to working everything out. Um, I'm not sure an answer to it would really, you know, is it future or is it past? Does it matter? Is it either? Um... Time is a strange thing in Twin Peaks The Return. And asking what year it is seems like a strange question. It kind of reinforces the idea that Cooper doesn't really understand what's going on, I think. That there is a naivety in trying to keep saving Laura. Um, which is a theory I absolutely adore. And I think still holds true when he fails at the end of Part 18. I was also... Um, the Laura Orb... Yeah, and I mean, part eight, I think, is confusing in the sense that the Laura Orb means 
it kind of implies that she's been put there or the idea of her has been put there as the as a kind of someone that will one day bring down Judy the experiment you know someone that is this white lodge being almost um so that's fair enough but like what what is the significance of Laura being placed down on earth in an orb it's an absolutely beautiful scene is it that she has this concentrated orb energy that she will use to destroy Judy or is it simply like a symbol of her goodness and how that goodness will eventually triumph over the evil that's been created by the bomb um I'm not entirely sure because I think it's the take the ring video that theorizes when when Carrie kind of wakes up and hears um, Sarah's voice and kind of remembers that she's Laura, her scream is like a release of concentrated orb energy. The electricity goes mad. Is Judy defeated then? That that theory would imply that Judy is defeated with that scream. And I can't see it being that simple at all. Um... So I don't know whether it is as almost as straightforward as having like concentrated orb energy that she releases. I don't, I can't quite work out what the orb is. This is a quote from the John Bernardy White Lodge Witness Protection article. That orb scene is either him sending, the fireman sending Laura into her new witness protection life in Odessa's past. Interesting. Or he's sending that homecoming photo to the Palmer house. That I love. I love that it's the photo of Laura. It's the photo that's superimposed over the star of every return episode, just like Cooper's face is superimposed over the sheriff scenes. And it's it's the photo that is kind of almost an essence of Laura, and it's the photo that is put on Earth. That's a great theory. Um, and the article speculates that it acts as a portal. Um, the photo acts as a portal. So... Um, which goes to the purple room and the knocking of mother is explained by Sarah Palmer trying to destroy the picture in part 17 and therefore open up a gateway to that place. So she's trying to get back in, um, trying to get hold of Laura, get to the White Lodge, get to the purple room, something like that. Um, but I really like the idea that the bottle hitting the thing is Mother knocking on the door, because Mother is presumably Judy. Um, that's a great theory. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really sure about the orb thing. Um, and part eight also... Part eight implies that the frog moth is Judy, and that Judy goes into the little girl, and the little girl is Sarah, and, and that Judy has always been Sarah. The thing I always forget is that the experiment, who is Judy, maybe, um, I think so, escapes the glass box in the very first episodes. So she could just go into Sarah Palmer then, when she escapes the box. So what's the frog moth? What's the frog moth going into... If the final dossier is right, and that is Sarah, you know, what? what's the frog moth doing? Is it like priming her for Judy what I it it you know the frog moth was spawned by Judy by the experiment so 
presumably the frog moth can't be Judy. So the experiment when it goes, you know, when it escapes the glass box is then when Sarah Palmer is taken over. Is that right? It seems like there are two things happening to the same end. Um, and I did kind of wonder whether part eight creates like a new timeline. So rather than a flashback to what happened, it happens kind of in a linear way. So it's not an arbitrary point that we're just shown this flashback and the explosion. It's actually like an alternative timeline beginning and an alternative track of events that kind of changes some of the things that have happened so far in the return. It's like the timeline reboots and it's like an alternative telling of Judy taking over Sarah and things like that. That's a very rough theory, but I do wonder whether that's the case. It makes me think about um, uh, what must have been about eight, seven, eight years ago. There was a Doctor Who book, kind of like a handbook released about the Daleks. I think it was called the Dalek Handbook. And in order to kind of... Um, there's a 1970s story of Doctor Who called Genesis of the Daleks, which is where you see the Daleks created for the first time. But the, what, what the book does is the book says new timeline begins and then Davros creates the Daleks. And actually anything before Genesis happens in an alternative timeline because the, there are inconsistencies between Davros creating the Daleks and whatever hints of their creation we've been given prior to that story. So I thought that would be a really interesting thing to kind of apply to this is that part A is in fact the beginning of a new timeline. It's the beginning of events taking a slightly different turn. Um, and yeah, that's something that I'm interested in thinking about and kind of continuing to explore and work out. Because um, I always forget that the experiment escapes the glass box. Because who's the glass box there to capture? Cooper, who I always assumed it was, or the experiment? Because if it's Judy and it's run by Mr. C, that would make sense. But if it's Cooper and it's run by Mr. C, that would make sense too. Is it both of them? Is it two birds with one stone? You know what? What oh, I need some more. I need some more googling on that glass box. Um, that's just a fascinating, fascinating thing. You know, the other kind of thing I wondered about, kind of on that basis, was: is the scene where Sarah eats the frog moth happening in the same world that Richard and, Richard and Linda appear in in Carrie's? trap world um because the song is the same is that actually the same world is the part eight origin story that we get actually an origin story of the lodge world and actually very little has very little relevance to our world um don't know that's something to think about i think that's quite an interesting idea um other kind of interesting random thoughts that i had or that i've seen um, there's a lot of talk about the everything is dreamed theory, like a lot of talk about it. I'm not a massive fan of it personally. I think just because I find that if everything's a dream, it kind of takes the magic out of everything a bit. It kind of feels like an almost like a like a dead end for theories. And I think there's a lot of credence to some of the dream theories for sure. There's definitely levels of dreams somewhere in the show. Um, I just think there's got to be more to it than saying. Richard's dreaming everything, Laura's dreaming everything. I'm not really sure where those discussions go, um, personally, but I think they've got to go somewhere. So they're interesting discussions to have. I just I just don't quite 
appreciate them at the minute, I don't think. Um, then they don't quite do it for me, those theories. And something else interesting that... Something else interesting that the... I think it was the Take the Ring video suggested that I hadn't realised was the Diane and Cooper sex scene in part 18, which is an incredibly uncomfortable and difficult watch, is important narratively, which I'd not considered, because there is a theory that sex attracts Judy because Sam and Tracy have sex by the glass box in part one. And my favourite bit of this theory of all, because it involves the secret history, um, the secret history talks about like sex magic and kind of having ritualistic sex to have some kind of like occult influence. And it goes into a whole kind of history of that movement and the figures that were involved with it in um, kind of in the secret history. So that seems like a relevant thing to bring up in the secret history if it's if it's important in season three. And that's an aspect of season three I'd not considered before because, you know, that would make sense. Like if, if sex does somehow attract Judy, then that's why Diane and Cooper have to have sex because it it's part of the plan, you know. Um, and and it's interesting that things change as well, which I'd not noticed until the theory video pointed it out. The motel changes and Cooper's car changes the morning when he wakes up as Richard and him and Diane have had sex. It clearly has some kind of influence or impact in this world, um, which is a, a fascinating thing to think about. The last thing, I think this is the last, the last random crazy thought. Well, crazy in the sense that I don't really understand it. Um, the little girl who lived down the lane. It's mentioned by the evolution of the arm and it's mentioned by Audrey. I just, I think I'm just desperate for Audrey's story to mean more than it apparently does. This is something that the Witness Protection article points out. You know, Carrie is all about, well, I need a coat. You know, I'll grab a coat. And Audrey's scenes are all like, um, oh, are you wearing your jacket, Charlie? Do I need my coat? I've got my coat. I've got my jacket. Are you taking your jacket off? You know, there's so much dialogue about this coat in Audrey's scenes. And it's it's obviously a deliberate mirroring in the Carrie thing. It's got to be. And yeah, and there's, you know, there's the electricity going mad. Um, at the crossover point between worlds when Audrey wakes up when um, when Carrie screams and when Cooper crosses over into Carrie's world um, Audrey's backwards music uh, over the credits of part 16 those are all things that the article mentions and that's a fascinating connection between Laura and Audrey and and what is the significance of a little girl who lived down the lane? There's 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 something to be deciphered there, a connection between the two. And hopefully it tells us something more about Audrey's story as well, because I, I really think I really think that would be important actually and, and a good thing to find in the narrative. So that is it. Um I, yeah, part 17 and part 18 are incredible. Um, for me, they're up there with part 8. I love them. They're both very different. Um, 
but they both make, in a weird way, complete sense considering the 16 parts that have gone before. Um, thoroughly enjoyed watching them. And I'm learning so much about what people think about these episodes and the theories, and I'm loving all of it. There's so much to talk about, and it's just the most exciting thing. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this splurge of theories and thoughts and discussions. And if there's anything that interests you, please let me know. If you're interested in playing along in a Twin Peaks game and helping to tell a brand new Twin Peaks story, follow the Twitter account Twin Peaks Game, um, which I run and uh, which has just been the most exciting interactive story so far. I'm writing a bit of a story every two days. I'm giving some options and then you vote on where the story goes next. It's great fun, so check that out. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's James M. Writer. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next week with a review of The Secret History.